Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? It's been a busy couple of weeks here at Indefensible Plants HQ, and for that reason, we're heading into the back catalog of Indefensible Plants episodes to bring you an episode that I think needs to be heard yet again, and that is our episode or our sedge episode. Sedges don't get nearly enough love, and I am guilty of that myself. They're just so difficult to identify without some fine-tuned machinery and a lot of attention to detail, and I just don't have it in me just yet. I'll get there eventually, but that is why people like my friend Paul Markham are so important. Paul is a lover of all things graminoids, but he has a special love for sedges, and he is one of the most talented sedge botanists I've ever met. I don't know anyone personally that has got more aptitude for identifying them and appreciating them than my friend Paul. So let's go celebrate sedges with botanist Paul Markham. I hope you enjoy. Paul, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, I'm glad to, glad to be here and do this with you. So, who are you exactly, and what do you do? Yeah, I'm a I'm a botanist at the Natural History Survey. Is what I do now. I I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio. Grew up in the city, uh, and then ultimately, as high school went on, we moved to a very small part of Southern Ohio, all wooded, very country. And I think from then on is when I maybe changed my trajectory of what I thought I would do, <laughs> and you know. Got excited, you know, about hunting at that time, which I don't hunt anymore, but and just being outside, hiking, yeah. getting in nature. So it wasn't plants right out of the... It wasn't plants initially, I don't think. I think it was just, you know, hiking, you know, probably what most high school kids do, you know, hiking, getting outside with your friends and mm. doing that kind of thing. and Just being immersed in it all. Right. I like that you meant to, mentioned hunting, because a lot of people I talk to don't come from that background or yeah. maybe a little more uh, iffy about it, but... I mean, some of the best naturalists I know are hunters, so... Right, and I never—I wouldn't say I was a ever big hunter, but I definitely appreciate that. Mm. But it's a window. It's a window it into absolutely. being outdoors, and it, yeah. it, I, what I like about it, and I, I get kind of jealous, I think I just might buy a tree stand to do this, but just sitting out quietly for a while, the amount of stuff you probably see is... Right, and just see what you actually observe by yeah. sitting there quietly. Right. Yeah. And then noticing the ebb and flow of how things change and what yeah. might influence, you know, whatever you're hunting. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. So when did the, the plant bug happen? How, did, how think, did it happen, I guess? I think plants started, when I went to college, I knew I wanted, I was good in biology. I knew I wanted to go into biology, I think, as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. And initially, I was, I was a math major starting out in college Ooh. and figured out by Calculus three that that really wasn't <laughs> something I wanted to do. And just had some good professors in biology at the time mm-hmm. and, and a, a botany professor in particular, Dr. Deal at Shawnee State University in Ohio, that I think really turned me on to, you know, plants and insects, which mm-hmm. was his background, both uh, those things. Um, my advisor in undergrad was actually a geology professor. Really? And my undergraduate degree is in natural sciences, so I have a background, you know, all the way from geology to chemistry and yeah. biology and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's like, I think... Just having a good professor that sort of focused me on something that, you know, wow, yeah, I really like doing this. This is something I could see myself doing for yeah. 30 years <laughs> and or more. You mm-hmm. know, I would do it, you know, if I wasn't getting paid for it. So, yeah, yeah. So that's I a good think point. That's, yeah, I think that's what got it started. That's cool. I like yeah. that you mentioned, like, two things there is, A, having an inspirational 
tutor of some yeah. sort to kind of introduce you to a topic in a way that isn't just kind of like, now here's the style. And right. Here's the yeah. stick. You know, I think a lot of the ways we teach botany is super boring yeah. for most people. And that's a shame. Cause no, he was, he was a very dynamic professor and he was, I also have worked for him during the summers doing mm-hmm. these, uh, it was called project discovery where we taught grade school, high school teachers how to oh, teach science nice. to, to kids and more hands-on approach. And he was all about that as, you know, more interactive things. And yeah. so it was, yeah, it was definitely an exciting course as he taught. Yeah. In fact, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I think if we spent maybe a quarter of the time that we do worrying about getting into top tier journals and spent that kind of talking to the public a little bit more, right. maybe we'd be in a better scenario than we, we are would. Right and, and But that's probably, <laughs> that's, that's where most people in science are less comfortable. Right. So, yeah, right. but it definitely is important. Yeah, I mean, that could be a whole topic on yeah, its absolutely. own. But uh, the other thing you mentioned was uh, just a well-rounded undergraduate education. Like, I get a lot of people asking, right. like, how do I become a botanist as an undergrad? Like, y- you don't. Right, yeah. Undergrad isn't really where you want to specialize. What you want to do is get that Yeah, really get a good strong, base of knowledge. Yeah. yeah. Like, I worked with someone that had no chemistry training, and so everything sounded really scary. Yeah. And, you know, but if you know the molecules, you kind of understand, well, okay, right. this one might be a little bit safer, and this one wouldn't. So, yeah, I think a well-rounded education first. And, and you find that. out in the end that they're all interrelated in some yeah. way, and they'll help you in whatever your final path is. But, yeah. I just yeah. downloaded a paper this morning that says the importance of bedrock and structuring absolutely. plant communities. Yeah, and absolutely. I'm like, ah, geology and plants yeah. meeting together. So <laughs> what then was the impetus to kind of go further with this? What did you do as your advanced degree? So, I, you know, going through, you know, at Shawnee State, I, I probably took every biology course that they offered it was a small school mm-hmm. uh, wasn't sure what I was going to go to in graduate school whether it was going to be botany or I actually liked herps so I wanted mm-hmm. to study you know salamanders or frogs or something like that and I went to Marshall University which has a, a really good herpetologist but at the time he had I think eight graduate students oh, yeah. so it's like that wasn't going to be a possibility <laughs> and on the same visit I met the, the botanist and curator of the herbarium there Dr. Dan Evans and he had some, a project in mind, and from then on, that was it. I was, you know, he had a, a study with sedges, a taxonomic study with sedges, and from then on, that's what I was going to be doing. So, nice. well, that's why the main yeah, reason I wanted absolutely. you in here today was sedges. Yeah. So, what like was this a group of plants that you looked at or even considered before you heard that project? Because you I, know, I think I was probably like most people, especially undergrads or you know, early in your educational careers. I knew what they were, mm-hmm. and I probably knew some common ones maybe, but I certainly didn't have a grasp of what I was getting into <laughs> at the time. And and to be honest, you know, 20 years later, there's still so much that I don't know, and that's, and that's why I like it. That's why yeah. it's exciting, because there's so much you don't know. So, yeah, so Sedges was a thing that my advisor did, and I should mention, too, that he was a Robert Mullenbrock student who's, uh, oh, nice. of course, a famous professor here in Illinois, you know, from Southern Illinois University. Yeah. So I feel I feel some pride in being a, a Mullenbrock grandbaby. Yeah, that's awesome. You know? So it's like, you know, and continuing that legacy. Yeah, I like yeah. those thinking that way. Like uh, my 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 grandmother of research is uh, Monica Turner. Yeah. You know, Yellowstone Disturbance Absolutely. Ecology, and then my grandfather's Ron Pulliam. So there I'm, you go. I'm in some good trees yeah, right now. That's a good, yeah, that's yeah, a good place to be. Right. Yeah. So, okay, sedges. I know they have edges. That's the cliche here. And I think, you know, like you, I can probably pick out a handful of really common ones. But 
what what are these plants for those especially that aren't you know have never been bitten by that bug well, i think you know one of the things that brought me to them is that you know initially people don't even they don't even really know what sedges are at all they just think that they're grasses of some kind right if, the, if they know the word sedge at all they just lump though them and rushes with grasses but they're tremendously diverse and especially in north america and also in asia mm. they're it's the dominant on the landscape you know in illinois alone 193 species are are, wow. are carrots alone you know 291 in the family so the largest genus in illinois largest genus in north america wow so as a botanist of something you know what i do for a living now you know i do a lot of environmental surveys a lot of holistic surveys things like that and if you don't know grasses sedges graminoids in general yeah, yeah. you're missing 20 percent of the flora right so it's like yeah, that's pretty big when you it's, put it that way. Yeah, you're 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 ignoring twenty. Like if you're studying for a, an exam mm-hmm. and just ignoring twenty percent of the content, it's like you're not going to do very well. Yeah, you're at a major disadvantage. You're at a major disadvantage. That's really fascinating. I'm really glad you framed it that way because yeah, you look at floristic surveys or even more intense ecological botany focused surveys, and you get graminoid SP or right. at even best carex SP. Yeah. So the glazing over is a pretty and I think things place. are getting better. I mean, I think if you looked at a lot of older surveys, especially, and, mm-hmm. and even older scientific publications, they would just really gloss over grasses and sedges. <laughs> you know, it's like almost like they didn't exist. Yeah. You know, we know they're hard. We don't think that we're not going to try to mess with them, and we don't think you should either kind of thing. <laughs> and I think that that mentality has changed. Yeah. I know I've, I've definitely seen it in the last couple of years. I started doing some workshops mm-hmm. for, you know, grass and sedge identification. And it's amazing how many people are interested now. Yeah, I mean, I just took your grass yeah. and sedge workshop or gra- grass grass workshop, yeah. but that was and we'll fantastic. do a sedge one. I think this coming year also. Excellent. So well, the cool thing up. is you made them free, so yeah. I appreciate that on my shoestring <laughs> budget. But yeah. the other thing is, yeah, they are kind of gaining in popularity, but the this kind of idea that they've been glazed over, kind of, you know, like begats like, and if people don't think it's important, and you're reading the base literature that says, well, we're just going to leave them at that. Um, yeah, so that's that's. It's all kind of coming together as to why they've been ignored. And like you said, at least the conversation's starting to change. But if you had to, uh, you know, loosely define what a sedge is or where they fit in taxonomically with the rest, are they grasses or are they something totally different? They're, they're graminoid plants, so that they're in the same order with grasses. So they're in the poales. Mm-hmm. So they are related to grasses, but as far as poales go, they're not closely related to grasses within that order. They're actually very closely related to, to rushes, the Junkaceae. Okay. So they would be the two sort of sister groups. Huh. Um, other things in the Poales that, that we have would include cattails are in the Poales, Xyrus, uh, uh, which are the yellow, yellow, yellow grass, yellow grass. Yeah, I think grass, they call them yellow grass. Something like that. Yeah. So a lot of things in the Poales, people tend to call them something grass, even though they're not really grasses. <laughs> so yeah. a lot of things in that order have been lumped with grasses, but... Largely due to superficial like right. similarities in structure. And right, form. they all have long. Most of them have long, narrow, parallel veined leaves. You know, similar looking. You know, morphology. Yeah, but I mean, the cool thing, at least in my brief introduction to this this group, is that some of the sedges actually have pretty beautiful flowers, which really isn't a characteristic of most graminoid. Yeah, things. well, and I, I think if you look at all of those groups, you know, they're really reduced flowers. Mm-hmm. But when you really look at them up close, you you see that there is some beauty there. Yeah. You know, I, if, just thinking of a grass like uh, Cytoats gramma, mm. Budalua curtipendula, I think is a really pretty grass when it's in flower. Right. It has these 
you know, bright orange anthers that stick out there, and a lot of grasses have really colorful anthers. And if you look at them close, you know, you, you see that beauty, but they're not lilies, they're yeah. not they're not orchids, so they're not going to like wow you off the mm. off the top. You have to you know dig a little deeper. There's something to be said for that—a plant that kind of makes you work for absolutely, the appreciation. Yeah. Like yeah, that's it's earned. It's a yeah. well-earned appreciation. Yeah. <laughs> so, what exactly did you do? I mean, that's kind of a big topic to jump in on. But what was your focus throughout your your research? Well, from for graduate school, I worked on a taxonomic question with a, a group of sedges trying to determine the hybrid origin of a specific one, Carex exedemii. Mm. So I had. It, it looks very similar to Kirkshortiana, so it had long been thought that that was the, you know, the maternal contributor. Typically, hybrids appear morphologically more similar to the maternal contributor mm-hmm. of, the, of the two. So it was more similar to that, and that's where they placed it in that section. So they, they know it fits there, but what is the paternal contributor? So I was looking right. at Carex squarosa and Carex typhina as possible paternal contributors to this hybrid. Huh. Uh, there are a lot of hybrids in, in Carex. That was my next question. <laughs> but they're almost always, and this one is unusual in that it's a hybrid between members of two different sections, which hmm. is very rare. What does that mean when you say two different sections? So Carex, because it's such a large genus, it's further broke down into, you know, you might hear subgenera sometimes, yeah. but in Carex they're broken down into sections. And each section are, you know, just like a, a genus, it's just a subgeneric taxon- taxonomy level of similar related species okay so just to make it a little bit more simplified you you don't want to look at 193 things you can break it down to 30 in a section (laughs) or in some sections of one or two three four right well when you think of like how messy classification schemes can be sometimes these these sections are true though i mean there's some validity to the fact that they kind of need these uh finer tooth combing sure i'd say that's true with with the advent of all the molecular data that we have now, we're finding that some of the sections aren't true. Okay. Some really are, um, but uh, but that's still to with Carex, it's such a large group. There's still a lot to be done there. Yeah. And there is some shuffling of sections right now with all the information that we're gathering. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. So how do you how did you go about this? Um, I've, you know, is this major morphological work? Were you doing molecular stuff? Like no, what? so I'm old enough that uh, that <laughs> yeah, the the molecular stuff wasn't happening so much back then. So most of mine was was you know just sort of old school taxonomy, morphology. I also did some uh, anatomical stuff, so SEM okay. microscopy kind of things, and to look at the problem. But yeah, yeah, that's... I, I wish yeah, I wish I'd come around for that part of it at least. I wish I'd come around. Five to ten years later, I think okay. would have been a huge difference. Yeah, but I mean, uh, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Yeah. We could probably say in 10, 15 years. So that is a, that's an experience I definitely lack right, and wish I, could I wish I had. But. Have these glasses that do right. the for us, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. But so yeah, I've noticed this, and and when you start to talk to people that are really into sedges and start going to workshops, this idea of morphology is super important when it comes to identifying species. So what kind of things are you looking at, and you know what? What helps you distinguish between these species, let alone these sections? Right. So in Carex, it's, it's, you know, I talked about in, in graminoids in general, it's produced flowers. Mm-hmm. So you don't have, you know, flower petals and those kind of things to, to tee you off, you know, from a distance. So you're looking at small features, usually bracts and scales. And in Carex, they have a, a unique feature, which is the perigenia or perigenium, 
which is a, a inflated, often inflated sack, but not, not always. It can be flattened or inflated. Uh, basically, they're fused, it's fused bracts that surround the, uh, mm. the female flower, basically. And they can be modified in different ways. They can be inflated, like I mentioned, which is an advantage adaptation to floating on water, being dispersed oh, by water. Okay. You know, they can be flattened so they can blow a little in the wind. They can have barbs on the edges, little little sort of barbs on the edge of it that yeah. can stick in the hair or furs or fur of animals. So all these kinds of things. So you're often looking at perigenia, you know, these, these you know, fused bracts around the female flowers. You may be looking at scales. Uh, but, you know, just general morphology things also come into play. Like people, people initially are worried about looking at sedges because they think it is just all microscopy and looking <laughs> at really small things. But once you really get into it, you'll find that you can identify quite a few species yeah. sterile, you know, with no fertile parts at all. You know, there's some coloration, you know, a lot of sedges can be really blue-green, mm-hmm. so you can kind of use that to narrow it down, growth form, whether it's a cesspathose species or whether it has long rhizomes or stolons, you know, those kind of things definitely tip you off, okay. uh, width of leaves, you know, some of the same things you would use for other right. groups. So, yeah, yeah. It's, not a, it's not rocket science, you know, <laughs> it's I wouldn't be science. doing it then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure rocket scientists would be like, what are you talking about? But <laughs> everything's relative, Right. Right. That's cool. So a lot of it, it comes down to weird adaptations or unique adaptations for seed dispersal, right. by the sounds of it. But then again, there's also all these different life history characteristics. Like the handful I can identify are very distinct yeah, and a lot from of them a are. distance, yeah, right? A lot of them are. I don't even need the flowers to get me there. And mm-hmm. I remember being on a walk one time and a guy it was just a general plant hike and he's like oh here this is how you tell this one and he kind of like lifted the leaves up scraped away and he's like see the red look at the base yeah, yeah look at the base right. and now, oh okay so it is kind of you got to get the bigger stuff out of the way before right. getting into the really fine-haired stuff but absolutely yeah yeah for a group as big as that i'm sure there's... yeah i mean any any little trick and tip that you can get <laughs> helps you in narrowing things down so a lot of those things and i mentioned molenbrock before and he actually has an illustrated flora of sedges for Illinois. And he, he actually, in the beginning of it, he has keys just like you know most plant books and guides, but he also has just a, a list of, of sedges with particular characteristics. Mm-hmm. So carrots that have blue-green leaves, here's your list of those. Carrots that have those red bases, he has a list of those. Nice. You know, so all these kind of things. So it's like instead of 193, now you have 10, 15, if it's some unique characteristic, maybe just a few. Yeah. So it's it's a good place to start. It's the kind of guide or key that I prefer. Yeah, and that's and that's what I think most people are using when they first get into plants. They're using Peterson or you know some picture guide guide, yeah. and so that's a good natural way for people to kind of get into it. And then they realize, you know, it's it's not so bad. And you go a little deeper, and you see <laughs> the other the complexity. So now that we know how you did it, what did you end up finding out? Who who were the parents with your weird hybrid? So mine mine was Kerkshortiana as as you would expect. So mm-hmm. it, in all, I did a lot of uh, multivariate analysis kind of stuff. So a lot of the, the scattergrams of PCAs mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. So you know, it always comes out pretty, pretty close to <laughs> you know to Kerkshortiana. It's yeah. always really close there. And in some, it it was almost impossible to tell because. Squarosa and Typhena, it'd be intermediate between both Squarosa and Typhena. Mm. If you know those two, they're pretty similar, mm-hmm. so it's not unexpected. Uh, but one thing I did, a new, a, a new uh, statistical 
package that, that came available when I was doing my thesis, actually right before that, was this program called HiWIN, hmm. which is, I can't remember what it stands for, but it's basically, it takes all the characteristics, so all of whatever you measured, all the features you measured for every specimen and gives you the most likely uh, other specimen that, oh, wow. where it's intermediate between, basically the two that it's intermediate huh. between. And it does all these combinations of things. And in that, it seemed to be Typhena was, was pretty clearly the the other parent. Wow. So it's, yeah, so it's, there are a lot of things in, in sedges that uh, I think are still mysteries. And, and <laughs> I think that that's one reason I think that I, I wish I really did have a molecular background at this point, because I kind of would like to go back to some of those things and expand on it. Expand a on bit. it. Yeah. yeah. No, and that's really cool, too, because both, you know, it's not the question of one or the other. And I, just based on using statistics, which is really cool, I don't think a lot of people realize you yeah. can do that to help distinguish species and right. hybrids. Um, but all of this, I'm guessing, was really hinging on solid herbarium collections, Absolutely, specimens yeah. to look at. Like the, the, the need to continue these collections and preserve these collections, yeah. I think, is really emphasized in the, that kind of work. Yeah, absolutely. So and that's that was my... Yeah, I worked in in the small school. I went to Shawnee State. We had a tiny herbarium. It was really just a, a teaching collection more than anything else. Yeah. So it was like local things, and I databased that when I was an undergrad worker in the herbarium <laughs> and did those kind of things. So at an early point in my career, I I realized the importance of herbarium specimens and definitely got to use them for my graduate work. Uh, and to this day, I I collect every year. I try to collect. <laughs> I used to collect about a thousand a year. I can't quite keep up with that anymore, so yeah. I try to keep it down as what at a manageable level so that I can process them. Right. Because I at this point I have a backlog. <laughs> yeah. So no, now you got some stacks. Yeah. Slide so over some there. stacks over here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cabinet, two cabinets in my office. And, right on. Yeah, three more in our our group room and things. So it's like, so you end up getting a lot of things, but it's important because if you don't collect these things, that information won't be available to the yeah. next researcher that needs that. Yeah. And in the case of the Carex hybrid, there were only, I think there were only like, you know, less than 20 specimens hmm. in North America. And it's a fairly wide ranging hybrid. Hmm. And there were only 20 specimens of it. So, yeah, so already a limit. Every one of them was precious. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. So speaking of hybridization, you know, I've heard this with ferns that a lot of North America's ferns probably arose through weird hybridization events. Is that true for Carex or is it just kind of these one-offs that... You know... I don't really know that that is true for Carex, and I think it probably are is these one-offs that most Carex hybrids are are not fertile hybrids. Okay. And they're generally pretty rare or uncommon. So I think it's like this rare occurrence that pops up, mm-hmm. you know, here, and a rare occurrence that pops up here. But unless they're unless they're a, a hybrid that has strong vegetative reproduction, it's probably not going to be long for this oh, world. Okay. That's what I would say. Yeah. In my experience, but. You know, you do have populations that definitely stick around because all Carex are rhizomatous, so mm-hmm. they have some vegetative reproduction, and they can maintain themselves there without hmm. reproducing for quite a while unless something so they're like catastrophic happens. Weird little legacies of a well, yeah. I, I think in a lot of cases that's basically <laughs> what you have. It's it is yeah. Oh, it's super cool. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, this is a really open-ended question, and I don't expect you to have a surefire answer. <laughs> so, what do you think is driving evolution, or at least the diversity of Carex? I mean, they're in pretty much every habitat you yeah. can think of, right? Well, and one one thing that Carex is somewhat unique in Carex is how their chromosomes divide. They have diffuse centromeres, so 
in meiosis, my, in mitosis, meiosis, the, the spindle fibers attach. In ours, we have a, a centralized centromere, spindle mm-hmm. fibers attach to the centromere. That's why our chromosomes look like an look X. Like an it's X. like a waistband. Or right. Whatever. But on sedges and also rushes, they have diffuse centromeres, so spindle fibers attach all along the length of the chromosomes. That's weird. So there's a lot of chromosome breakage. Oh. And I think that's a huge thing. I don't know enough about that part of it, but I think it's a huge thing in sedge character's evolution. And if you look at chromosome numbers in sedges, they go from everything from like N equals 6 to N equals 66. Wow. And there's a lot of variation. Many species have multiple chromosome huh. counts that have been counted. So I think that's a huge part of chromosome evolution. Right. Or sedge character's, you know, diversification, I guess. So you get these gametes with just really strange combinations. Right. And if they happen to combine with something else, right. something new is probably going to yeah. result. Wow. So you have a lot of these really similar looking species too. That's that's the other difficulty <laughs> in, in Carex. Yeah. You know, lots of, there are lots of groups that are cryptic. You know, the, if you just walked by them, you would probably think they're the same thing. Yeah. And you may need to... In those cases, especially, you probably need fertile perigenia. You need fruit to identify them. Yeah, I've always kind of looked at them as like the sparrows or shorebirds of the the plant world, just because, you know, nondescript sometimes, a lot of things that look really similar, and you just, that's why all these workshops exist. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. I like the shorebird analogy because I just came back from Texas and I'm trying to identify a bunch of pictures of shorebirds. (laughs) Yeah, I was just doing that the other night. (laughs) suffering through a lot of frustration. Yeah, and that's what ended up, my girlfriend and I just kind of settled on like, well, we're not going to get it based on this picture is I think what it comes down to. (laughs) Yeah, we don't have breeding plumage. (laughs) Right. Which is what, in care you don't have fruit and you, yeah. you, you maybe just yeah, yeah. out of luck till next year so yeah, the, the the idea that there are these weird cryptic ones is, is i think troubling to some but i also can see where that would be very exciting to others yeah it is yeah <laughs> well and one advantage we have with plants is plants aren't moving anywhere true so if you saw it yeah you can go back again and again and again yeah yeah with that that shorebird that was your shot yeah yeah exactly it's like <laughs> eh, good luck man. you missed it you know <laughs> Yeah, I, I love it because I did I did a talk or a hike with the Botanical Society and a guy was like, oh, come over here. And he showed me this like weird little wet spot by this road and how there was this unique sedge. And for the life of me, I can't remember which one it was, but he's like, this is really unique. It's super rare here. Yeah. It's kind of endangered in the state. And that was like, I just picked up on that. And now, I'm like, hey, you want to see something? I'm like, don't ask me why. Yeah. <laughs> I just know it's special. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. And it's it looked a lot like a lot of other sedges I had seen. Yeah. But I, I trusted his expertise. And yeah. maybe one day I'll return and try to figure out what it was. And exactly. I think that's what you find with most, you know, there are a lot of rare sedges. That's another reason that it's important to know sedges. Mm-hmm. For my, my job is doing environmental surveys. There are lots of them that are rare, state-listed. Okay. Things like that that I need to know. And there's almost always a common one that looks a lot like it. Darn it. So it's or or multiple common ones <laughs> yeah. that look a lot like yeah. it. You know, in some yeah. cases. So it so it is often the details. You know, you can you can get things you can tell it's a carex really mm-hmm. easily. That's not hard at all. You can usually tell what section it's in or what group, even if you don't the names have changed, so it's like when I started twenty years ago some of the sectional names are different. Right. So even if you don't know the name of it, you can see that this and this are related and similar. Mm-hmm. So you could just put in your own section. But to get it to the species can often be difficult. Dang. So what 
what is the process of finding something strange? And I mean, you realize you talked about the perigenia and stuff, but for casual listeners that maybe don't have the time or the money right now to sit down for a four day workshop or, you know, or they don't have a afternoon workshop available through their extension or something, what are some really good places to start? I would, I would say start as local as you can. Yeah. You know, start in your backyard. You're, you're likely to find, even if you live in the city, I bought my house here six or seven years ago. Some of the common ones will just grow on your <laughs> lawn, especially in here. Carrick's Jamesii, called Lawn's Edge, is a really common one around here in Champaign-Urbana. Uh, Carrick's Divisii, Carrick's Blanda, Carrick's Grizzia. These are all really common things that are probably in almost everybody's lawns. Hmm. So start with those, you know, get to know those. And then when you see something out, it's like, well, that looks like Grizzia. So I know it's in that group. And then kind of delve into it further and then just expand out. You go on hikes, you know, look at the ones that you know mm-hmm. and, and just keep expanding. It's like, well, I know this is really similar to Carex Blanda. That's in section Laxaflore. So I know it's in this group. Yeah. And, not, and you're down to 10 or 12. Okay. Instead of 193. <laughs> so it's, yeah, easier. so start locally, you know, with the ones you see a lot and just keep expanding out. Yeah. That's what I liked about your grass workshop was we sat down and keyed out a species we knew exactly what right. it was. Right, that's first. always a good way to start because yeah. with both of those, with grasses and sedges, there's some specialized terminology. Yes. So until you get past the specialized terminology, you're not going to have much success. Mm-hmm. So, and it's not complicated, it's just, it's just learning yeah. You know, new names for parts of plants. And that goes without saying, I mean, for all plant identity or any animal sure. identification to start with what's familiar, learn the language because it is really absolutely, a different yeah. language and then yeah, work from there. But then as you specialize, if it's your forte, also learn how to relate said yeah. specific information to people that might not necessarily and be. That's, and that's the difficult part with, with sedges. And, but it's something I think it's getting easier just because... I mentioned earlier, there seems to be a, a, a bigger importance to people now. And I think a lot of that, groups like Master Naturalist, I think when you took the grass workshop, mm-hmm. a lot of those folks were Master Naturalist. Mm-hmm. And I think they're they're now in like 45 or out of the 50 states or something like that. They have these groups. Mm-hmm. So you have a group that already has interest in all different aspects <laughs> of biology, geology, all these things. Uh, so they come into it wanting to learn. Yeah. And that's a huge part of it. You know, you, if you get an eager audience, it's a whole lot easier to teach something to them than, Certainly. than, than <laughs> you know, trying to slam something that's difficult down right. their throat. Yeah. And that's tough, too. And that's something I've really been thinking about a lot in the last two weeks is how to talk about this stuff with people that maybe not necessarily don't care, but just don't want to think about it on the level that you yeah. and I would, you know? And Well, and that's one thing as a botanist, and you know, I participate in a lot of, you know, identification kind of groups and things like that. The first question you get from people that don't have a biology background is, why is it, what, what good is this for? Yeah. You know, and that's something that, you know, for a long time, I, I really hated that question. But now it's like, you know, People should understand that all plants are important because they're part of our diversity. <laughs> right. They obviously have ecological interactions with lots of other things. So just as a background, they're important. Yeah. But I can understand people, they're not trying to be, you know, whatever. They, they just, if, if it has some medicinal use, if it has some noted ecological importance just for them. Right. So I've tried to focus more in the last few years of trying to, think of those things because that's not I mean that's not my emphasis for trying to learn plants yeah of 
you know, that this sedge is particularly important to this ant mm-hmm. or something like that. Or this sedge is important because, you know, Native Americans used it for a food source or, you know, right. herds of, you know, bison or, or, or antelope or something grazed on it. So it's important for grazing. Or, so it's, it's not what my focus is, but I try to bring that into my stuff because I know it'll be attractive to other people. Yeah. And, and maybe it brings other people interest to it. Yeah, that's a really good so. point. And I struggle with that a lot because I'm like, it doesn't matter if they're medicinal. They're no, exa- regardless. Yeah. And that's, a, I was definitely very resistant to that for a long time. And yeah. And I, I think the, all those things are interesting. I, I like to know those myself, but it's like, it, it, in the end, it really doesn't matter. Right. Yeah, and it's it's a good point. And I, I, there's a channel I watch on YouTube all the time called Vsauce, and I highly recommend that to everyone. It's a really fun, uh, just 15 to 20 minutes if you have the time to sit oh, down check and just it out. learn a yeah. lot. But I, I, he's a really good storyteller, and I think that's he's not an expert in anything. He just really likes reading and disseminating information. And he said, it's like fishing. The more hooks you put, put out, there you go, the yeah. more people you're going to catch, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the more th- ways you can relate these subjects to to the general populace, uh, that's, you know, that's a good way to put it. Probably yeah. be very surprised who ends up glomming on to what you're saying. Yeah. Um, so in that vein, uh, you know, if there's a handful of sedges, I mean, one or two, cause just time constraints. What are some really cool species that stand out to you? And, like, why do you think they're, just ecologically speaking? Well, of course, I think the first one that comes to mind is Carextricta, tussock sedge. Okay. Just because it is a, it's an ecosystem builder. You know, it's a, it's crucial to its habitat, sedge meadows. Hmm. It creates habitat for other species. So species Hmm. live, so they're in sedge meadows, typically pretty wet under, but they build up these large tussocks that can, extend 10 12 inches up right bad for us to walk through <laughs> but it, but it's creating habitat so that species that aren't adapted to that wet part that's in the bottom they can grow on the top of these tussocks so they're creating habitat for other species and creating greater diversity in sedge meadows cool so things like that i think that I think are interesting what is a tussock just because uh, i know i mean like that's a tussock i can see yeah it, like, so a tussock what is it exactly so sedges are rhizomatous okay but in the case of tussock sedges Typically, rhizomes go horizontally. Yeah. But in tussock sedges, they also grow vertically, oh. and they create these hardened masses, yeah. basically, of of stems and rhizomes that that build up. And okay. when you walk across a tussock, you know, a sedge meadow, you're getting all these mounds, these tussocks. <laughs> They're just ankle breakers for us. Yeah. But. Yeah. I've had a few incidences yeah. uh, in those, and you're usually pretty close to a grass that's going to cut you up as well. <laughs> right. So. Yeah. But so yeah, they're they're forming. So these tussocks actually form like a growth medium for species that don't necessarily like to have their roots. Right. In it's water. creating yeah, habitat diversity, basically. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. So what was the other one you're gonna? Uh, well, some of the other just interesting to me are there's a group of sedges in the section Acrocystis. So you, you may know Penn Sedge, Pennsylvania Sedge. Yeah, it's yeah. A, a pretty common one in that section. So rhizomatous sedge with really narrow leaves. But there's a group within that section that have their flower, they flower super early in the year, and they have their flowers tucked into the leaves at the base. Hmm. And I think they're just the most interesting things. They're The reason the flowers are tucked into the base because they're adapted to having ants disperse the the perigenia oh they're so right so they so that you know so they do these kind of, and there are others in the in carrots also that all that have even oil bodies to attract the cool. ants and, you know just like some spring ephemerals do yeah so i think those kind of things are, are really interesting and 
the reason that group is interesting also is that they're super cryptic and people are studying them now and finding that we probably have a lot more species in that group than we ever thought. Wow. You know, because if you think about it, the flowers are tucked into the leaves really low. Most people, even botanists, walk by them. Yeah. You know, thinking, oh, it's not fertile. It's not ready to collect. Yeah, okay. You know, so, you know, so even botanists are walking by these things. Even people <laughs> that are trained yeah. are walking by these things. And, and now I think there's a guy in North Carolina that's, that's doing some research and finding nice. that there are a lot of species in there that, that we didn't even think, yeah. think about. And that, I think, really just speaks to the fact that, like, I hate when people say, oh, there's no low-hanging fruits left. There's, there's a still lot a lot of them. They're just kind of weird ones that a lot of people have right. passed over. And that's another reason that ser- that sedges and grasses are, are, are really kind of interesting and keep, you know, that fire that you have when you start studying yeah. something is because there are. I mean, if even just in the last 10 years, we've added over 30 species of carrots to, the, wow. to our state flora. That's amazing. So, it's, so you can make a real contribution you know, a noted contribution to, to our flora just by looking at these things closely. Just a little bit of patience. So and some yeah, a little right patience, <laughs> but, but, you know, it keeps that excitement. You know, yeah. it's like everybody wants to find something new and unique, and right. uh, this is definitely a place that that's possible still. Yeah. And, I mean, outside of just the ants and stuff, I mean, I'm sure these, cryptic or not, these species are hosting things like Lepidoptera, a Absolutely, lot of other yeah. Sed- there's a whole group of sedge moths. What? Yeah, so there's sedge moths. You know, there's all kinds of insects that are associated yeah. with them. Yeah. So they're really just, I mean, foundational species in any environment right. that just, you know. Yeah. They, and they I think blend. if you think about the diversity, this is something I like to point out too, is that usually with sedges and especially carrots in general, people think of those as being wetland species. Yeah. I mean, that's. And, and certainly you can find a lot of them in wetlands. But I think the greatest diversity is if you go to eastern forests, like mm-hmm. where you're doing your research in the, in the Appalachian Mountains. You can find 20 species in a, yeah. a nice woods. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty good diversity in one in a small area. Yeah, I was very lucky that all of my big, one of my projects is a big floristic survey of different sides of the mountain. And the ones that fell in were ones I felt pretty confident at yeah. identifying. But yeah, I get into some areas and I'm like, I wouldn't know where to begin right yeah, now. Yeah, there's a, there's a tremendous diversity in, in our forest that, that I think for a long time people didn't really think about. Right, and I would guess some pretty strange species that we probably don't know existed. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think the highlight, one of the highlights of my summer, and I mean, I saw some of the best botany I've seen in eastern North America was actually finding that really strange... Um, it's like Wilson sedge or whatever. It's that big one that almost looks like a bromeliad that fell out of the Oh, wow, of the tree. I don't yeah. think I didn't know that. It's incredible. I think, from what I've understood, I think it's back in Carrick's now, but it's very strange. It looks like, like I said, a bromeliad that fell out of a tree. Oh, I know. Fraser said. Fraser said. Fraser said. I know what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Carrick's Fraser yeah. or something now, and it's got those beautiful flower tips. They're actually color. Out. They're yeah, white. White. And, yeah. And uh, we were just by my friend's property on a lot that's for sale but has never been developed because it's just too costly. Yeah, and we very were falling cool. up a creek, and boom, there it was. And it, first record in that county yeah. so and i think it, it's interesting also because it's it's the only member of probably actually the, the family in north america but definitely of carrick's that is thought to potentially be insect pollinated really and because of those colors i'm not sure if anybody's ever yeah. proven that it was but there are some papers that suggest that it may be insect pollinated hmm. or insects are attracted to it at least i mean it makes sense why invest in such a right and in, in doing that if it's not working yeah yeah, it'd be really cool to find out. And I realized that, you know, pollination is a whole nother topic, but yeah. there's a lot of 
confusion and a lot of unknowns in that realm as well. So that's one I actually planted that one in my yard last year. I bought it from yeah. from a nursery in the Blue Ridge. Did it do okay? It's done fine, yeah, Great. for one year. So that's, yeah, that's what I'm pretty happy about right now. Yeah, I considered it for my study, and and uh, the guy at the potato ground was like. Don't waste your time yeah. on this one. <laughs> you know, this it hasn't grown a whole lot, but yeah. it's it's maintained itself, right? Which so is far really all you can. Which ask is all I can garden. ask for at this point. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So moving forward a little bit, you mentioned there are some threatened and endangered uh, carrick species, and I mean, I think you know, you say threatened and endangered any graminoid, and people are like, but there's like grass everywhere. Like, right. what are some major threats? Uh, obviously, the big ones are habitat destruction. Yeah, but... like in Illinois, especially. We've lost so much habitat to agricultural use, of course. Yeah. And then if you think of Illinois, and carrots in general, most of them are fairly conservative, I would say. There are, I've talked about the ones you find in your yard. There's some definitely weedy species, quote weedy species. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely some really common weedy species. Almost all of them are native. Mm-hmm. There's only a couple of non-native carrots in Illinois hmm. out of the 193. Shot. So they're almost all native. Many are conservative and actually found in pretty unique habitats. So a lot of bog species. Okay. You know, which was always an unusual habitat in Illinois, or at the southern edge of that range. Uh, others coming up from the south. You know, in in swamps in the Gulf Coastal Plain. Right. You know, so cypress swamps and Tupelo swamps are some things unique there. Uh, but yeah, you can find them in all habitats, like you know, dry prairies. You know, general prairies. Wetlands of all types, sedge meadows, floodplain, forest—they're found everywhere. Right. So the threats to the habitat are the threats to the sedge, essentially. If yeah. Conservative. Yeah. They don't really get out of those places very much. They're not a generalist, in other words. Right. I would say that you know a lot of the rare ones—they're found in unique habitats. Okay. And then some of the others, it's because of just general habitat yeah. loss throughout the state. Yeah. I mean, and it is kind of funny to say they're found in unique habitats when so many of them are the foundation of said habitat right. too, yeah. you know? So it is this kind of, I, I think we would do really well for conservation of biospheres in general if we just kind of said, you know, plant conservation is pretty darn important. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. so that's, yeah, I think, you know, just an appreciation of them is a good place to start for that. <laughs> yeah, and I think one thing with a lot big increase in interest in sedges came on with with wetland regulations and things like that yeah so having to mitigate for wetland loss and sedges of course are a big part of wetlands in, in a lot of cases but they don't often respond even with bringing back hydro hydrology to sites really they don't often just respond naturally like through the seed bank or things like that so it, it became important to actually grow them right so this is something that just in, in my career has changed. 20 years ago, you couldn't buy a whole lot of sedges for doing restorations. So if you wanted to really restore a site, it wasn't yeah. available to you. Huh. And now it's pretty easy to get the common ones. Yeah. And you can even get some pretty interesting things now. Yeah, I've even seen a handful of species offered as like lawn, uh, no mow lawn right. alternatives, yeah. right? Like yeah. some of the small, like Carrick's Pennsylvania. Yeah, and they're, it's really a hot thing right now in landscape. Yeah. In horticulture, sedges have become a big thing. Unfortunately, it's not, there are a lot of them aren't our native species, a lot of them are actually Asian species, okay. but certainly a lot of our natives are being used as well. Yeah, I mean, people are talking about it enough now that I think yeah. those things will come on board. Yeah, and eventually. I think in a lot of ways, you know, they're at least as interesting as grasses, yeah. ornamentally. Yeah, oh, totally. I mean, some so of them make great specimens. Yeah. I mean, I've been, I've stopped 
a car pulled over on like a wooded ridge or something like, and gotten out that? to be like, look at that beautiful, just yeah. seeing them on like a ridge or, you know, in their full glory when they don't have a lot of damage or competition. Like some of them yeah, are super absolutely. attractive plants. And, and many of them, they're evergreen too. So they're going to yeah. keep, they're going to keep their color throughout the whole year, yeah, which is something that is nice for us in the Northern areas. <laughs> it's uh, winter botany is one of the saving graces. <laughs> like, Ooh, there's a melt. Let's go see. Yeah. What's <laughs> yeah. So yeah, no, that's really, that's a really good point. Um, just beautiful, ecologically important. Yeah. Um, many of them need our help, uh, and just overall a really cool group to start getting yeah, into. Absolutely. So, any recommendations for people that really want to start diving in? Like you said, just get yeah, familiar think, with some basics. Yeah, definitely get familiar with with what's locally. You know, go to your local natural areas and parks, and definitely visit herbaria. Mm. I think if with groups like sedges and grasses, get to know herbaria. Look at their herbarium specimens. It's it's often difficult to further dive into it and get to those cryptic things yeah. unless you can see a, a real, an annotated specimen that an expert says, this is this. Right. Because you can stumble oh, yeah. for, for a long time thinking yeah. you know something, but until you see one that definitely is that example. Yeah. Yeah, you can... And I'm sure collection managers would be super overjoyed to hear Absolutely. someone come and be like, I'm interested in looking at what you have there. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, I think you'll be surprised. I mean, I think people think of Herbaria as being, you know, stuffy museum places or whatever. But, mm. you know, they they definitely welcome visitors. They, they welcome volunteers yeah. in a lot of capacities. And some of them, like some of the bigger ones, have some pretty impressive, like I went, to, I don't know how common these are on display, but like I went to the Missouri Botanical Gardens and got yeah. a tour of their Herbaria and I saw Charles Darwin and, right, the you know, and Darwin Linnaeus there. like yeah. on display. You could see their handwriting. Yeah. And, you know, it's like a if you're a history buff at any level, that's like mind blowing. Yeah, I should point that out too. One reason that I, I do like specimens as well is I it, it is sort of a history thing. Yeah. So it's like in Illinois, it's not the same level as Darwin, but right. but E. J. Hill specimens and Bebb and you know early botanist specimens and most are very actually keep. Uh, writing samples oh that's cool because most early labels were written in cursive on paper not typed out Mm -hmm. and sometimes you can't tell what the heck they were talking about or what they wrote (laughs) (laughs) so unless you have an example that you know what it means it's like oh that's how he did his ease or that's you know or something so there's a lot of historical kind of things you know place names change river names change in some cases so there's a lot of things like that 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 are kind of interesting just background yeah, I mean, related yeah. to that, I remember uh, I was talking to Stuart McPherson, who's like a world Nepenthes expert in describing and finding yeah. and exploring, but he said, you know, the detective work he needed to do to say, like, Thumb Mountain, looking yeah. at the translations and stuff, and that's how a lot of stuff ends up getting rediscovered or, right. you know, new populations are found because, like, oh, we... And even just understanding distributions right. of things, you know, if you if you can't track something down to an old place name, if there's no record of that... Mm-hmm. You can't even figure out, oh, it's only found, if you can't pinpoint that, you know, now we have GPS, so almost everything is pinpoint to a, you know, what, three meters or yeah. whatever, so that's pretty easy, but if you can't, you know, it's hard to say, oh, it, it's restricted to this soil type, it's restricted to this, you know, rock type or something mm-hmm. like that based on maps, so there's a lot of things you can do just with geography of where specimens, hmm. you know, fall out. Very cool. That I think are pretty interesting. Awesome. Well, uh, going forward, if anyone wants to find out more about what you do or just get a hold of you or find out when your workshops are, how can people look you up and get a hold of you? Yeah, so I should mention most of the workshops I do, I work for the Natural History Survey here in Champaign-Urbana mm-hmm. on campus U of I. Uh, 
but I'm also I'm the president-elect of the Native Plant Society and this incoming president in 2017. So most of the workshops I do are sort of run through Native Plant Society. It's it's a not-for-profit, so I don't charge anything to do, <laughs> you know, to attend these workshops. Yeah. I just want more friends and, you know, people that like plants. Yeah. I just want to encourage people to go out and, and, and study plants. Yeah. So we'll post them on Facebook, on Illinois Native Plant Society. Our local chapter is the Forest Glen chapter. So like us on Facebook and you'll get notifications of those. Uh, and definitely consider joining your Native yeah. Plant Society. Excellent. Yeah, I'll put up links to all of those so people yeah, can absolutely. find you a little bit easier. I know I definitely have some listeners in this region. So Great. That'd Wonderful, be great. Paul. Well, thank you so much hey, for taking the time. Lot, I know you guys got a lot of reports and yeah. filing and <laughs> describing species yeah, to of, do. but uh, stacks of folders of plants to go through. <laughs> yeah, but that's an exciting day. Where, you it know, is, yeah. A lot of people... You never know what you're going to find and what you, yeah. you know what you've spent the whole summer doing and <laughs> there's, there's always a couple surprises right. every year yeah. so last year I was able to do a project in Wisconsin and didn't know what I had in some cases and actually found a really rare plant in Wisconsin a pyrola nice. pyrola minor mixed in with another one that was very common oh that's so we cool. thought we were collecting the common one and it is pretty similar yeah and I actually found it mixed in with two different collections that I made. Excellent. So it's only like the second record of that species in Wisconsin or well, something. So it's done. like so those things are always <laughs> kind of exciting in the winter to like, oh cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Again, whatever gets Sweet. you through these times. If you're like me, it can get pretty depressing come February. Yeah. So, like, so it's yeah, it's what gets you to spring. Wonderful. <laughs> All right. Well again, thank you so much for taking the time. This was a real pleasure. Great. Thanks a lot, Matt. Cheers. All right. Thank you all for listening. That was such a fun episode. I can't tell you how much I appreciate Paul. He is such a good person, but also one of the most talented botanists I know personally. You can check out all of the relevant links for Paul's work in the show notes for this episode. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast so that you can dive deeper on all of the wonderful topics we discuss in each episode. You can also support the show by picking up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, or some stickers. Those links are on the website as well. But that is it for this week. Thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.